And then after death, it's possible, Socrates says, that yes. the soul is is liberated from its bodily prison. And that view of matter, which is at best indifferent, uh, at worst negative, then becomes a gender dualism, right. as feminist theologians Women's have pointed are the out. Right, ones. right. That the, the earth, like Mother Earth, is embodied, and yeah. that's. As Mr. Mackey from South Park would say, that's bad and good. I was just reading various things about the soul, different beliefs that do exist within the greater Jewish world. And in addition to the idea that whatever we are is a is a single entity that eventually becomes worm food, I see the notion of reincarnation, that our souls actually have multiple forms. And then the idea that the soul part of you is actually not you and it's not yours. That is God's. And there's this notion of a death called a divine kiss or God. God's kiss, and God comes and breathes the soul back, breathes the breath of life back, and you die very peacefully. Wow. And God takes it back that way. Do you know what I read at night? You're talking about Hegel and Derrida. Do you know what I read at night? I have no idea. BuzzFeed. Hi, I'm Dan, and this is God for Grownups, and my now regular guest is Beatrice Lawrence, and our topic for this conversation is the soul. So I've been thinking a lot about this because I recently preached a sermon on the topic, and I came to a point where I discovered something about the way various books of scripture talk about the soul, and it's not, at least when it comes to the Christian faith, what most people believe. I would be curious to hear if there's anything like that based on your experience in the Jewish faith, do you find that people, when it comes to the soul, are in one place versus what the Bible says is well, something else? I always have to respond with more questions. Do you mean in the Hebrew Bible or in Jewish tradition or in like 2,000 years since the Bible? Are you asking the broad question? What if we went with all three, like if we started okay. with the Hebrew Bible? Well, it's never that everyone's on one side of anything. Okay. So general agreement about the existence of the soul is not something you're going to find among Jews, if Fair that enough. makes sense. Because yeah. Jews don't agree about anything. <laughs> Two Jews, three opinions. No, it's totally true. But um, I'm sometimes of the mindset that Lutherans are the same way. Really? In my congregation, at least. And yeah. do they do they let you know if they disagree with? Oh yeah, okay, they do. Yeah, and I uh, and I uh, for the most part, actually, I, I often, maybe always, appreciate, especially when it's good natured disagreement. Yeah, I think that's pretty great. It's healthy. Mm -hmm. The word in the Hebrew Bible that sometimes people translate as soul, I will say, I don't think it means that. And is there's nefesh? Is that the word? Nefesh, and there's ruach. ruach. Um, and these are words that are translated sometimes in biblical texts as soul, but uh, biblical scholars generally look at it differently. Nefesh appears, uh, appears to refer to a person. And so um, it's a personhood instead of, it, can, it even is related etymologically to the um, throat. How so? What do you because it, it it means something like breath? Uh, is that is that why? It's, well, meaning that whatever we identify with this person is physical. It has to do with a being that breathes. It has to do with a being that eats. It has to. It's it's corporate. The separation of the body from the soul, I think, is not native to the Hebrew Bible. I don't think it is is either. I mean, yeah. from what I've read, and I also don't think, for the most part, it's native to the the, the Christian scriptures either, because. 
most of the authors who are writing the New Testament were Jews who mm-hmm. then became followers of Christ. Right. So what I discovered was that just like you're saying, when it comes to the soul, it's usually synonymous with self or person. Right. And we even talk that way today when we talk about, for example, how, say, in World War I, over 100,000 souls perished, right? If you think about that language, soul, perished, right. that's not what people believe. Most people believe, I think, at least in the Christian tradition, and I think that in spite of the diversity among the various expressions of Christianity, there is a common view here. Mm-hmm. And the common view is that souls don't perish. Right. Souls live on which I then realized after reading a a particular scholar, a guy named Mark Allen Powell, a New Testament scholar, that that is actually something Paul is arguing against in his letters because if the soul is immortal, the resurrection is unnecessary. Is unnecessary, right. Which is like mind-blowing to me. And that would be the same in the the Jewish tradition as well, in the book of Daniel, for example, right? There wouldn't need to be a resurrection of the righteous and and the condemned if there was already belief in an immortal soul, I th- right? In Daniel, I mean, I guess I have other things to say about what it's doing there in Daniel. But I will say that, like, even in Leviticus 17, when God says, I've given you a, the blood to atone for, um, people translate it as your souls, atone for your souls, and then it's tied into salvation theologies. Um, I translate it as your lives or yourselves. Uh, so you're right, it is a different way of looking at a person. Daniel is an apocalyptic text. Weird stuff was going down in the apocalyptic period, and the way that it shows up, at least in Jewish texts during that time, we, we've left the realm of what is indigenous to the text itself and to the Semitic worldview, and we leave that realm for about 400 years before returning. Now, I one time did a survey study of the Mishnah, which was codified around 200 of the Common Era. And what does Mishnah mean? Um, well, it means teaching or repetition, okay. and it's the first collection of oral teachings from the late biblical period and immediately post-biblical period that interprets the Bible, and then around 200, under the leadership of a guy named Rabbi Judah, the patriarch, they collected them and put them in books. And so it's random teachings. And then there's commentary to the Mishnah called the Gemara, and then you get the Talmud, and then, I mean, proliferation of books is what these are all interpretive commentaries, These are all interpretive literature. Trying to make sense of the the texts, okay. Could find no reference to the soul as separate from the body even then. Wow. See, I think, to me, this is sort of like an open secret. It's right there. Mm -hmm. But because of translations, like the New Revised Standard Version translation doesn't translate souls in terms of the idea that there is some kind of ghost in the machine or some kind of <laughs> mm-hmm. disembodied essence that is that is unaffected by time within us that somehow lives on after this this translation doesn't say it doesn't use souls it uses self or person mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. and i find that to be so clarifying because i guess what i discovered was I just using different language than you're using is that the soul is basically kind of like the animating force of life and that when the body dies, the soul quote unquote dies with it. And Paul's teaching is that when there is this general resurrection from the dead, there is a new body that is, that is raised up and the soul is then revived or reanimated uh, and inherits this new body. It's not like the soul lives on and what, what, 
traditional Christian teaching around this is, Martin Luther, for example, talks this way, that when you die, the soul goes to sleep. It's, it has no sensibilities or anything, uh, and then it's basically awakened on the last day. I, I'm not sure I see a clear separation of body and soul in the Hebrew Bible. I see individual texts that give conflicting interpretations on that question, and I see some texts that reference people, um, people's spirits and how they feel about things, um, but I don't, the, you know, I think about Samuel in the book of Samuel. That's what I wanted to ask you about. First Samuel 28. Yeah. King Saul is having a really bad time, and he goes to a medium to ask her to raise Samuel from the dead so he can ask him for guidance, and she does. And the the language of the text, it's interesting in what it says and what it doesn't say. It says she sees a man. He's wrapped in a cloak. Um, it doesn't say that Saul sees the man, but we know that Saul hears the man. There's a lot of information that you would have to import to this story to come to the conclusion that an afterlife functions one way or the other. Was he corporeal? Was he not corporeal? What part of a person is not corporeal? And that is uh, what we don't see elsewhere in the text. We don't see this idea that a person has a part that lives on. Right. And, but can I, maybe, this maybe throws a wrench into it. Can I share it with you? It might. And as you do that, I... The distinctions that I'm making are purely abstract. I don't think I don't. I wouldn't want to uh, to say that there is some kind of almost ontological or 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 some kind of dualism that that these that these two things are sharply differentiated. It's just that there is seems to be this kind of life force or the breath, the animating force, and that uh, with the exception of the story like you're talking about or Ecclesiastes that talks about how the spirit may go up to God after we die and the body, you know, returns to the ground, whatever. That's, those are the two that I think are exceptions, but it seems to me for the most part, they're, the two are basically one. I, and I really like the lack of dualism for the most part. Mm -hmm. I do too. I, I mean, I appreciate, especially with later developments in degrading the body and elevating the soul and how that pertains to the treatment of women and people mm -hmm. of color and yep. all of these things. I very much appreciate the the lack of dualism there. But as you're pointing out, we have some texts that what those texts say to us is there are ideas here that are not being expressed clearly that we don't have access to. And we, owe, we only see these references, but, um, a few years ago, uh, not a few, 12 years ago. Um, oh, my God, 12. I know. So for our listeners, before this episode, we were talking about life in, <laughs> in, in, in our 40s <laughs> and all the, the, the things that start to happen. Like I was standing in front of my, my house trying to unlock the door with my car keys, and I'm not talking about the key itself, the button. I was pushing the beep, button beep, to like unlock. Like it's going to open the door. Yeah. <laughs> That's a problem. I don't think I would have done that in my 30s. <laughs> I don't. I was 35. I had just had my second baby. I was still married. I don't want to think about this. There was no gray hair. Okay. Um, and then, I love how that conversation, that part of it, that part of this conversation has just been sealed up yeah, and boxed Yeah, I just away. indicated I'm never going there again. Fair okay. Enough. 2008. Um, they uncovered a stela from Turkey. What's called, a stela? Oh, um... A, it can be a metal or um, clay, uh, what is this, like a monument? Okay. Uh, pictures, 
words that's been erected for a specific purpose and record something. Okay, okay. so we, we can have some that say King Renepta of Egypt went through the went through Israel and and collected a lot of booty and whatnot. Um, this one uh, was from a high official named Kutamua, which is why it's called the Kutamua Stele. So this is 8th century BCE. And it was set up, it appears, in preparation for his own funerary banquet. He was essentially making arrangements for his own funeral. It's an 800-pound monument. Okay. Um, and it was discovered in an annex to his own house, most likely a mortuary chapel or a private shrine. And it lists, um, it says that he, he created this during his lifetime and that he inaugurated it in the mortuary chapel with offerings to various gods, including Hadad, the storm god, Baal Hadad, and Shemash, the sun god. The word Shemesh means sun. But the part that is really exciting to people... So these were deities that belonged to the Canaanite religion? These were deities in the Canaanite, Canaanite pantheon. pantheon. Yeah. Um, one of the offerings was a ram for my nabshu, was the word, that is in this, this monument. And the word nabshu is related etymologically to the word nefesh. Bs and Ps switch out in Semitic languages. So he made reference to a post-death part of him residing in this monument for which offerings were made. Okay. So biblical scholars all over the world were super excited because it told us the word nefesh might mean more than we thought it did. Hmm. So it has a range of of meaning that could could simply be synonymous with self or person. Or something that goes on. Yeah, something that persists after we die. After we die. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think is at stake in this question? That's a really good question. I know for me, what I, so my favorite, one of my favorite moments in the Hebrew Bible is when Job has his various sort of uh, soliloquies. And to me, that's sort of, he's sort of the Shakespeare of the, of the Hebrew Bible. And when he says that a mortal born of woman, few of days and full of trouble comes up like a flower and withers, flees like a shadow and does not last, I, I find that so easy to believe. And so part of what's at stake here for me is is a kind of cognitive burden that in Christianity at least, and I'm willing to bet there is a huge difference between these two traditions here. In Christianity, the cognitive burden, the cognitive load uh, of what is required to be a, a, a true Christian or a believer is so heavy that it sometimes makes me think the whole religion is not worth it. Hmm. I would much rather acknowledge what just seems to me to be the inarguable truth of someone like Job who recognizes the finitude of soul and body together. Uh, so part of what's at stake for me is finding views of, of what it means to be human and in this case what it means to face death that are less of a burden cognitively that I can, that I don't have to, I guess what I'm saying in nerd speak there, but what I'm saying is where I don't have to struggle to believe it in order to be a good Christian, but rather simply accept something that just seems true. And that is that when we die, we die. I would like to um, bring in some things that you find in Jewish contexts about the question of a soul, but I want to also come back to this, this cognitive question. burden as well. Yeah. I'm curious about that, but we Do can you, set that. I have a really huge question about this, which you may or may not want to address now or ever. Do you have to believe anything to be a good Christian? 
So there's a book by Bertrand Russell called Why I'm Not a Christian. Russell was an English philosopher in the earlier part of the 20th century, early to mid 20th century, I think. And I remember in that book him saying that you have to believe, in order to be a Christian, you have to believe in the immortality of the soul. Hmm. And uh, I believe that Jesus is divine. It's totally arbitrary. For one thing, uh, Paul, the, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, wouldn't even measure up to what Russell thinks means it means to be a true Christian. Is he the Maimonides of Christianity? Setting up what you have to believe in Maybe. order to be. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting comparison in, in that sense. Yeah. No, I, what do you have to, I think, I, I would answer that in two ways. I think that there is an expectation on the part of, in particular, the vast majority of evangelical Christians that you have to believe, and this is, this is expressed in the so-called five fundamentals that gave rise to the term fundamentalist in the, in the earlier part of the 20th century, that you have to believe at least five things. You have to believe in the, what is it, the divinity of Christ, the, the virginity of his mother Mary. You have to believe in a bodily resurrection that will occur, and that, and that Jesus himself was bodily uh, re- resuscitated after he died. Um, I believe you have to um, accept that his death was a payment for for sins, which is a, a, a really I think goes back more to Anselm in the twelfth century than it does to Paul or anybody else in the first. Uh, and I can't remember. I think the last one has to do with his second coming. I don't remember these clearly at this point. But it's been uh, there have been many attempts to establish what constitutes sort of the the most basic belief requirements for for being Christian. And I find most of these to be extraordinarily arbitrary, and a lot of them to have little or no biblical basis whatsoever, which is ironic because they claim to be biblical. And I I, it, I think that's really. Uh, a big problem here. For myself, you know, I like to think that to be Christian means to believe that there is something more to life than just what is. Uh, my mom used to say that she raised my brother and me in the Christian faith because there is more to life than the golden rule. And I've always loved that, that there's something more, there's something bigger. And that for me as a Christian, that something bigger became personal to, to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. It was, it was a genuine question that I was asking, not a rhetorical one. I wanted to be yeah, clear because no, I feel I'm, like there's I, such a per, I feel like there might be a profound difference between Jews and Christians in this way, but there might not based on what I don't know. But being Jewish is kind of a yes or no question. You are or you aren't. Um, arguments about whether or not conversions are valid set aside, but you are or you aren't. I feel like it's different in Christianity. I think it pertains more to, it's not about birth and it's, it's, as much as, and it's even not necessarily about conversion. It has to do with what ideas and beliefs you carry, and that's a very different way of being in the world. So this is why Jews don't have to. I mean, Maimonides said, "Hey, believe these principles," and most Jews don't. And I, I feel like that's a significant difference, which means there's no need for a central doctrine around the soul. There's no need. Yeah, and in the Christian faith, there's a long history of uh, of orthodoxy, which means mm-hmm. right opinion or teaching, versus orthopraxy, which I believe is emphasized a lot more in the Jewish tradition. It should be orthopraxic and not orthodox Judaism, because really what matters in orthodoxy is orthopraxis. Right, so yeah, so how how you live your life, yeah. correct? Yeah, and, and how you observe the basic... Um, rituals and so forth of the of the Jewish faith, is right. that... Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Um, 
in Christianity, I think almost from its inception, I mean, we have s- certain like creedal formulas that are that are already present in in the New Testament. Paul says in one of his letters, First Corinthians fifteen, that uh, that he received uh, what he is now handing on to the to the believers in. And notice believers. I mean, right mm-hmm. there. Uh, but but he talks. He basically rehearses a set of beliefs about how Jesus appeared to people after he died. Um, so I think it's kind of, it's kind of essential to, to Christianity. And I, I find that for, as somebody like me who tends to be pretty cerebral and, and likes to think ab- abstractly, that part I enjoy, but I don't like how beliefs end up becoming the all determining factor as to whether or not you're a Christian. And who gets to decide that kind of thing? I I feel like I could be accidentally lobbying you something really hard or really soft right now. But for example, there are a lot of atheist Jews. Can you be an atheist Christian? So you know me and you know that that I've done a lot of work on that. Absolutely. I think for the vast majority of of Christians, I wonder what our, our listeners think about this, but I think for the vast majority of Christians, the answer is no. Okay. That... And I think that's what made death of God theology and so-called Christian atheism at least something that got the attention of people because mm-hmm. it's so unusual to mm-hmm. talk that way. Um, and and I think once people, if they did the, their homework and read some of these theologians, they recognized that for the most part they weren't at least conventional atheists. Yeah. Uh, Altizer, for example, the most famous death of God theologian from the 1960s, talked about himself as a kind of post-theist, but not mm-hmm. an atheist, that God undergoes essentially a kind of transformation in the course of history, dying to God's self in God's eternal form or disincarnate form, becoming manifest in history and in particular in and through human consciousness. That's so unusual for the for the Christian faith, though. Okay. I think there's a lot of good arguments you could make to support his view. And it has a lot in common with a philosopher named Hegel in the 19th century, the most undecipherable philosopher in Western history. That's More what than Derrida? Keith Ward calls him that. Um, I don't know. That's that's a good question. They probably rival each other in some My ways. friend claims Derrida laughs in the grave when people try to understand what's been written there. Well, and and I, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Deleuze, Matt, our friend Matt Whitlock's favorite philosopher, yeah. is also is so hard to crack. Yeah. I mean, but but yeah, I do think that that is a it's a distinction that I think holds uh, in terms of these two these two traditions, in spite of their all in, uh, of all their internal diversity. Yeah. I still think the thrust of Christianity is along the lines of orthodoxy and the thrust of, even though there are important exceptions like Maimonides in the Middle Ages. Yeah. But um, Middle Ages, that kind of brings us back to our 40s, doesn't it? Actually, (laughs) do you know what I read at night? You're talking about Hegel and Derrida. You know what I read at night? I have no idea. BuzzFeed. Okay. Y'all smart people reading these (laughs) things on your own time. I'm like, dude, I'm tired. Yeah, but- I have a stack of books next to my bed that I need to read, and I don't know when I'm going to have the focus. But you, uh, me too. I have a ton of books. And and one of the worst and best things about being the pastor where I'm a pastor is that I'm constantly getting book recommendations from people, and I can't keep up. And we even created a community uh, virtual bulletin board so that people could post all their recommendations for other people instead of it all just coming to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't, I don't read the stuff, you know, late at night either. I can see our friend Matt sitting down with a bourbon and these books at like two in the morning. 
I think I, I admire people like that. So, uh, so Matt, anyway, Matt's pretty intense that way. So smart. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I was thinking about this soul question when you mentioned it to me before we, um, came here today to do this. And I was, hold on, I have to sneeze. Pineapple. You want me to get you a tissue? No, I said pineapple. It went away. Did you know that? If you say I, pineapple when you have to sneeze, it makes the sneeze go away? I That is the bizarrest thing I think I've <laughs> ever heard in my life. I okay. mean, but I have to I, I have to consider the source. This is from the same what? person who, who drives around watching television in her car. I don't do it anymore. Oh, you don't? You stopped no, doing that? No, I did stop doing it. And now my kids won't let me even text when I'm driving. And, so I'm... Which is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is good. But I think it's hilarious that your oldest... <laughs> Doesn't want to take driving lessons from you. No, she doesn't. She said, Mom, I don't want you to teach me. You're a terrible driver. Dad's too fast. I'm taking lessons. Anyway, I was just reading various things about the soul, different beliefs that do exist within the greater Jewish world. And in addition to the idea that whatever we are is a a single entity that eventually becomes worm food, um, I see more abstract notions. I see the notion of reincarnation, that our souls actually have multiple forms. Um, always human though. And then, um, and then the idea that the soul part of you is actually not you and it's not yours. That's the breath God breathed into the clay being in Genesis chapter two. And that part, that is God's. And there's this notion of a death called a divine kiss or God's kiss. And God comes and breathes the, the soul back, breathes the breath of life back and you die very peacefully. Wow. And God takes it back that way. Yeah, it's so fascinating, and that that image of God uh, of God breathing. Uh, what's the word? Inhaling. Yeah. The the soul. Really. The life. The life that force. was deposited there initially. Yeah, is that a view you would say that's that we find in Ecclesiastes three? Is does that? I, I'm thinking about I'm that about text it. in particular. The other question I have for you, and and I, you're you, you're sort of answering it by just indicating how diverse the tradition is, both with regard to the I'm annoying the Hebrew front, Bible right? and subsequent Jewish interpretive traditions. But what I'm curious about is this talk about Sheol and how there are certain mm-hmm. people who, like Samuel apparently, who uh, uh, dwell in Sheol after they die. I mean, doesn't Sheol mean, it, it means it's a reference to the underworld and right. it means something like the, 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 the shades, doesn't it? Isn't that one of its meanings? One of the translations of the words, the word, um, Rephaim is shades, which yeah. I find not a super useful word because at least for contemporary readers. Um, and I remember in one of my Grad school seminars, we went round and round about this word. I think poetically, it's a beautiful word in English. It, 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 it suggests something about how the the essence of a person is, it, it persists, but it persists in a kind of, dis, yeah, diminished form. Yeah. Exactly. An echo is another great way. It's an echo of a person. Yeah. Um, but the question that always emerges, is this a ghost? Are, are, you, are we calling ghosts up? Was Samuel a ghost? I think it's interesting um, to trace the idea that develops that People went down to the underworld, which is the grave. And synonymous to the underworld is the grave in several places, um, being buried and going to Sheol. And for Daniel, that's where the bodies are going to come up, right? So it actually is as if the whole person went down there, and now the whole person's coming back up. Fascinating. So oh, that makes a lot of the sense. The separation between the soul and the body wasn't necessary. Right. 
Right. Because um, the entirety of the person is resurrected. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. That and they talk about the, the human experience in the grave and in Sheol, and it's one of nothing, nothingness. We do nothing. Um, and so we don't have an idea of the soul traveling, of the soul having a different experience. This is just what happens to people. Wait, I pulled up Ecclesiastes 3, and I wanted right. to make sure to address what you were. Right. It's mm-hmm. uh, 20. Verse 20. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the Spirit of Who knows? Uh, 20 and 21. Do you want me to read it? or Sure, go ahead. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all turn to dust again. That's one of the phrases that functions as the basis for ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that we that we say when we Besides impose Genesis the ashes on, on... Yes, that's yeah. another. When we impose the ashes on the forehead during Ash Wednesday. Who knows whether the human spirit goes upward and the spirit of animals goes downward to the earth? Verse 22 then, so I saw that there is mm-hmm. nothing better than that all should enjoy their work, for that is their lot. And it says, essentially at the end, who knows what's going to happen to him after? Right. Who can bring them to see what will mm-hmm. be after, after them? Yeah. yeah, we don't know. So what do you do? What, what does this do for you in your question? Uh, verse 21, I think, is the one that you're interested, whether the spirit of man um, goes up and the spirit of beast goes downward. Did that? Does it say spirit of man or of God? I thought it said of God. Did I miss that? No, ruach b'nei adam, the spirit oh, okay. of yeah. the spirit of a human. Yeah, okay, that's right. So in the New Testament, there is a distinction between spirit, so-called capital S spirit of God, small s spirit of of the human being. I don't know if that distinction. We can't make that. Can't distinction. make that in the Hebrew no, Bible. No, we can't. But. Um, I love the word being translated as spirit here because it does mean breath also, and um, and that's what God did. What God imbued in the first clay human being was, well, the second human being, but um, was both breath and spirit, which means the spirit is tied to the breath. And in fact, the original definition of the end of life is when they stop breathing, the breath has left, the spirit has left. I'll stop there because that's ancient literature about the moment of death. But are you wondering if this is saying something about an after experience of that? Right. Well, I mean, it, it seems to be that there there must have been, the the idea must have been circulating when mm-hmm. this author wrote it that 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 there is a human spirit that somehow persists beyond death and this author's saying well basically as i hear him it's like well there's this one idea that but, the human spirit returns to god after after we die but we don't know well, we don't know so just focus on this life right. is essentially what he's saying right and we don't know if that rendered kohelet the writer a uh, unique or if his writing reflects sort of a consensus. Right. We don't we don't know anything about that. So What about the reception history of this book? Were rabbis hesitant because of what it says about the afterlife? They struggled a little. Well, in the in the conversations that we have access to, which are few, about canonization, mm-hmm. you find a place where they're sort of hemming and hawing about Ecclesiastes. And Esther. Yeah. Um, yes. And, and Esther. the Song of Songs. And Song of Songs, yeah. For different reasons. And Job. And Job. Yeah. Wow. They, they decide they're okay with Job because they decide it was made up and it didn't really happen. That's interesting. It was a parable. There's a great modern Hebrew poem about the final injustice done to Job is rendering him a parable. It's an incredible poem. Anyway, um, so, and, and there was a, a little bit um, of being on the fence about Ecclesiastes, which I, I see as a reflection of potentially there being beliefs 
that they would see as flying in the face of the beliefs that had since developed. And I'm always curious how in rabbinic Judaism, we start to see references to things that aren't in the Bible. Were they getting it from Christianity? Um, what effect did Platonic thought have on the development of rabbinic thought such that it changed? But um, And Platonic thought would have just been the philosophy derived from Plato going right. back to the 3rd century BCE, I think. Including a significant emphasis on dualism. Absolutely. That's yeah. one of the major distinctions and the where the, you have this kind of what's the, the the image that Socrates uses that who is basically Plato's construction for all we know, but Socrates the philosopher compares the the soul uh and the body to uh the body to a prison and that the soul inhabits this prison during our lifetimes and then after death it's possible Socrates says that yes. the soul is is liberated from its bodily prison. And that view of matter, which is at best indifferent, uh, at worst negative, then becomes a gender dualism, right. as feminist theologians Women's have pointed out. Women's are the embodied out, right? ones. Right. That, that the earth, like Mother Earth, is embodied. And yeah. that's, as Mr. Mackey from South Park would say, that's bad and good. Okay. And, and the spirit is identified with the male, the male transcendent ego. I do want to say, <laughs> nice, Nice. I do want to say at the end of Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite indications of discomfort later people had with the messages of a book. And so that we have um, Kohelet, the writer, at the end saying Kohelet sought acceptable words, words of truth. The words of the, of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings which are given by one shepherd, period. Nope. And furthermore, by these, my son, be admonished. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the entire duty of a human. Um, for God shall bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it is good and whether it is evil. So essentially, an editor came in at the end and replaced this speculative approach with, no, and stop studying. Yeah, and uh -huh. it's yeah, it's sort of like it's sort of like, and they all lived happily ever after. Exactly, is added. Yeah, exactly, and wow. do what I say. Yeah, um, and I feel like that's a good sort of reflection of the trouble the rabbis had with it. A Interesting. Little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, you you asked me earlier, and in, uh, in this conversation, conversation, it might be a good way to frame it as we come to a conclusion. What's at stake for yeah. me? And part of it's the the cognitive burden that comes with mm -hmm. being Christian, frankly. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it's something I've always loved about my favorite theologian, Paul Tillich, is that we shouldn't set up for ourselves what he calls artificial stumbling blocks. There are certain beliefs that we can relegate mm -hmm. uh, uh, to the margins. And we can do that by looking at what the Bible uh, actually says or what we think it says, as well as what subsequent Christian tradition says. But I think what's at stake for me is that the way that I conceive of death affects the way that I live my life. Yeah. And so if, I, if I'm agnostic about it, the way the author of Ecclesiastes seems to be, that has, that has a certain effect. If I believe that the soul persists beyond death, that has another effect. I think for me, it makes it, I want to live an intellectually honest life. And so I want to believe what I, what I feel is true. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's really hard especially when it comes to the possibility, the very good possibility that we may not go on at all in any way after this. I want to accept whatever is the hardest truth, uh, but at the same time, I, I think that makes 
it makes it harder to deal with the loss of those we love mm -hmm. and really hard. Mm -hmm. So that's what's at stake for me. I hear you. Yeah. What, how about you? Is there, what do you feel is at stake in this question for you? Um, I feel, I feel like there are parts of me that there's so much at stake that it's hard for me to entertain the questions. Um, but I know I have resistance to certain ideas and I'm still in the process of parsing out the resistance. So here's the, here's what I'm thinking of. Um, our friend Matt Whitlock that we mentioned is really into sci-fi and he's always made good recommendations. And there's a show out right now called devs. I haven't heard of it. Okay. Interesting. And it's about, it's essentially about, Oh, Matt, Matt's mentioned it a yeah. couple times by text. It's interesting. It's, it's an idea behind it is, is a person who's uploaded a whole person. Is that all there is to a person? Right. And is, and as long as you have all the memories and experiences, is that the person? And I resist that, but I don't yet know why. I'm grateful to be in a tradition where I can go and, and be in religious community and have a smorgasbord of options in front of me of, about how to look at things, but I'm not at peace with the question. You sure sound like a seven on the Enneagram. <laughs> we were talking oh about God. this earlier, that sevens love possibilities. But yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the benefits of studying the Christian tradition is that it's more concealed on the surface in my tradition, that there, that there is this just vast array of options. But we have on the books uh, um, a theologian who uh, essentially came up with a theory of reincarnation or the mm -hmm. transmigration of souls. That's on the books mm -hmm. in the Christian tradition. It, it, it essentially uh, contributed to him becoming declared as a heretic after he died and condemned, sadly. Hmm. But, but yeah, I find that I find that as somebody who really wants to think through the faith, how wonderful to have these options at yeah. our disposal and to be part of a, a conversation, your stream or, or mine, that goes back thousands of years. Yeah. Yours, yours even more than mine, far well, more. But, but mine assuming yours, at least a particular interpretation of yours. Sure. Um, so... To be so, continued, yeah. then. To be continued, yeah. I, I, I just, uh, I think the topic is so important for us to think about when it comes to how we live our lives, and at a time where we're being surrounded, frankly, by talk of death with the COVID nineteen situation and the, the, the many infections and the, the being over one hundred and twenty, thirty thousand people now having died in the United States. I think these kind of questions, which at first seem cerebral, are really important to have. They're, they're very real. Yeah. Right now. So definitely. Well, thank you for joining me thank for this you. discussion. It was wonderful. If you if you uh, have a chance, dear listener, to subscribe, we invite you to do so. And please, uh, of course, as well, feel free to leave comments in the comment field. Thanks. Take care. Yeah.